Hi, you're listening to Once Upon a Podcast, and I am one of your hosts. My name is Chandler. And I am your other host, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chandler. (laughs) You had a kind of fun random fact that you wanted to talk about today. I did. I love random facts. Actually, my sister really got me onto random facts, and she's just this wealth of knowledge of these things. I have no idea how she comes up with them. It's amazing. So I'm trying to be more like her. And uh, I heard about this just interesting building design. So you may, I don't know, you, it's, okay, I'm totally failing here. I cannot add like <laughs> anything, Taylor. This is, I fail. Okay. I'm not funny. Take I'm a just, second. That's all right. I'm just going to read. So this building that I heard of, if you've ever wanted to be able to walk in somewhere, this sounds like something from a spy movie, and be able to observe everything at once. It's impossible. You can't actually look at you can't walk into a room and see everything at once, see every kind of angle and corner of it. It's impossible. Your back's always going to be to something. However, somebody wanted to be able to observe or at least seem to observe all corners of a room at once. So somebody in the 18th century put their mind to this and they came up with this building and it is called a, let's see if I can pronounce the name correctly, Panopticon. Have you ever heard of this, Chandler? I haven't, No. So I'm, I'm quoting from the uh, wonderful source of wisdom, Wikipedia. Uh, the Panopticon is a type of institutional building, so prison, um, and it's a system of control designed by the English philosopher and social theorist Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century, as I said earlier. So the, the point of this design is to allow one watchman to be able to seem to observe all of the inmates of this particular institution at one time even though he can't actually see all of them they don't know who he's looking at at any given time so they have to uh, regulate as the wikipedia page says regulate their own behavior oh that's weird that's such an interesting design but yeah a very weird idea <laughs> very weird idea so if if people want to go uh, learn more about that it's a panopticon Go have fun. Yeah, I'm kind of like scrolling through some of the uses too. It looks like it's come up in uh, episodes of Doctor Who, the <laughs> original series, which makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Some of these buildings are kind of cool, but also very scary looking. Does that make sense for a prison? Yes. So just, yeah, good to learn about. Don't bad to experience. Let's put it that yes, way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> exactly. Well, moving on. So today our book that we would like to uh, kind of discuss is Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. So E.B. White, he has acclaimed books for children and adults, numerous prestigious literary awards, one of the New Yorker magazine's most important writers for over 50 years. Do you know what he said? Writing isn't fun. Elwin Brooks White was the master behind three children's books, many books for adults, and grammar and a grammar guide that we still use today, among many other accomplishments. E.B. White, as most know him, was born on July 11, 1899 in New York. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Cornell University in 1921, and from there worked as a reporter for a few different newspapers and news services. He started sending manuscripts to the newly founded New Yorker magazine in 1925, and they worked for months trying to convince him to write full-time for them. It took them even longer to persuade him to come to work in the office. White may not have enjoyed the writing process, but he was astoundingly adept at it. The grammar guide mentioned earlier was one originally written by William Strunk Jr. in 1918. Actually, 
William Strong Jr. was a professor of White's at Cornell. Um, and uh, White updated this grammar guide in 1959. His version quickly gained acclaim, and actually there's a short opera based off of it, composed by Nico Muli in 2005. I definitely want to learn more about the opera, and I remember learning about Strunk and White in um, journalism classes, and it was a long time before I found out it was White, was E.B. White, uh, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was an extremely private person, and White hated talking to strangers. At the office, he would avoid people he didn't know by slipping out through a window and using the fire escape. And while he claimed he struggled with talking to women, he ended up marrying Catherine Angel, one of bedrock literary editors of The New Yorker. And they had one son, Joel. White loved the country, and he had a farm in North Brooklyn, Maine. It is here that his most famous story, Charlotte's Web, is set. There is much more to be said about White as relates to his writing and how he connected with the world around him. But for that, it is best to read it from the pen of two fantastic writers. The first is Andrew Ferguson in his article entitled Writer's Seat. Ferguson's tale of his personal love of White's writing and deep connection with an author he never met is delightful to read and gives a wonderful sense of White's character. The second piece is Kate DiCamillo's introduction to Charlotte's Web. Again, another personal anecdote sets the stage and draws the reader into a vivid world of White's farm. Charlotte's Web was published in 1952 and went on to win a Newbery Medal. It still ranks as the number one children's book across the country. Many children asked if his stories were true, to which White replied, no, they are imaginary tales. But real life is only one kind of life. There is also the life of the imagination. Beautiful. It is. Do you remember the first time that you read Charlotte's Web? No. Again, this is another one where I, everything kind of melds together from my childhood, apparently, and mm -hmm. I, I have no distinctive memories, I guess. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I know I, I read it um, at least probably a couple of times, but it had been years. And then in college, actually, when I was taking a journalism class, I can't remember whether it was first or second semester, Charlotte's Web actually came up again. I, I remember walking into class and people were chatting beforehand. And uh, one of my classmates, uh, Mark Nida, was talking about E.B. White. I had missed the beginning of the conversation. And he, Mark was like, oh, yeah, I, I go and reread Charlotte's Web like once a year just because the prose is so perfect. It is so well done. And uh, that was when I learned that White was the white in Strunk and White. So That's really sweet. I love that. Yeah. So that had kind of, that. That was what brought Charlotte's Web kind of back into my uh, sphere of knowledge here, however you want to phrase mm -hmm. it. <laughs> I remember, so when I was in third grade, I was attending a public school at this point, and I remember we were supposed to either choose from, uh, there were a couple of E.B. White books. I think it was like we were supposed to choose whether we wanted to either read Stuart Little or The Trumpet of the Swan, I believe, is also E.B. White. Yes. Um, and I already read both of those. And so my teacher suggested that I read Charlotte's Web, and I'd already read that one. <laughs> and it was quite the struggle for her to find a book of that kind that I hadn't already read. But I think we got there eventually. So I don't remember my first time reading it, but I'd certainly read it by third grade. <laughs> oh, great. Did you happen to read Kate Camillo's introduction to the book? No, I didn't. Okay. I, I'm familiar with her, but I didn't realize that she'd written the introduction. Yeah, I think it must be on this particular edition that I have, which is, um, well, 1980, it looks like. Um, okay. My edition. So my edition is like a, a later reprint of it, but I don't, so I don't know when she wrote this, but she starts it by talking about how she always skipped over 
Charlotte's Web. She saw it at the library, but she never wanted to actually read it. And it was because of the illustrations on the front. It scared her. Oh, is that – I'm looking at the cover now. I wonder if it was the spider that scared her or well, she said, <laughs> something about the animals. Yeah, she said that Wilbur looks um, uh, scared and nobody looks happy on the front, which I thought was really interesting. But uh, That's funny. No, I mean, it's true. I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah, I had never thought of that. So Garth Williams is the illustrator for this and for some other just fabulous classic children's books, um, the Little House series – and so Laurie Ingalls Wilder's Little House series. And he does um, George Selden. I think it's George Selden's Cricket in Times Square um, and some other other books. But uh, I was used to his drawings from that. So I had never I had that thought had never crossed my mind about this. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I've always found the drawings very charming. And I think he um, he makes the animals look so lifelike. And in a lot of the drawings, you can really see their character in their facial expressions, which is really fun. Exactly. Because you don't get that a lot, I think from animals and, uh, or it doesn't strike you. It, it strikes children, but it doesn't strike us old people, old people, older people as much. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, I think that's true. <laughs> it's charming, charming to see. So there actually, um, the lovely thing about this book is there, I, there's not a there's not a ton of characters. When I was kind of thinking about this, who are who are our main characters? There's not really a lot of them, and one of them that I have on our, our main character list, I'm actually not sure if they're a main character or not. So uh, let's hey. let's have a discussion about this. Who who jumps to your mind as kind of the first main character in this in this book? Right. So of course, the first character that we meet is Fern. Um, who is this little girl growing up on this farm and she learns one morning that her dad is going to slaughter a pig who was born and um, it's just too small and he doesn't think the pig will survive. And that pig is, of course, our main character, Wilbur. What a great name. I love that such a little girl. And, and, and Fern is only eight in this book, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. And I just, it's fun because I have a lot of younger siblings and one of my siblings will be eight soon and i just like to think about that in comparison with book characters how how he acts as as compared to these book characters that i love and um but she's so insistent it's such a wonderful uh look into it, the child's mind in in a sense and uh to see what they how just utterly horrified she is by this Absolutely. Yeah. Which I think is something that anybody can relate to, but especially a kid reading this book for the first time and certainly a kid who maybe didn't grow up on a farm or doesn't know that this is something that just happens. It's really horrifying. And I think you really share in Fern's horror um, and appreciate how hard she works, not just to save Wilbur, but she really befriends him and sees him every day and works to take care of him. Exactly. And I want to come back to Fern in a little bit because there's some really beautiful moments with her and how she interacts with the animals. Um, but probably the most important main character that we have is our, our titular character. I think that's how you say it, is mm-hmm. uh, Charlotte. Can you tell us a little bit about Charlotte? Yeah, Charlotte is a spider who Wilbur meets um, in his little pen in the barn. There's this really sweet scene where he's calling her out that he wants a friend and nobody wants to be his friend. And he hears this voice saying, I'll be your friend. And the next day discovers this very motherly figure of Charlotte, the spider, um, who immediately 
even though she's annoyed by Wilbur a lot of the time, she really feels the need to take care of him and to calm all of his many anxieties. Um, and she's really an incredibly loyal friend to Wilbur. She is. And it's, it's a, a friendship. There's, I think there's many types of friendship and we could talk about this in, in either our themes or, or now, but there's a number of different types of friendship and, I would classify this type of friendship as more of a mentorship kind of a friendship because Wilbur is, well, if you think about it in animal terms, Charlotte really isn't that, probably that much older than him, but like in the life cycle of a spider, but she's very wise and she has this experience and this knowledge, but she doesn't keep it to herself. She's not condescending to Wilbur. She's there to help guide him she she loves him for who he is and for his wonder at the world and she wants to nurture that so like you said a mother a mother yeah yeah absolutely she sees that Wilbur has this um innocence as the newcomer newcomer and the kind of baby on the farm that she really wants to protect while also trying to help him learn the ways of the world exactly and this uh, this protection goes to great lengths, uh, as we as we see, as we shall see. Um, okay, do you agree with me that Templeton should be a major character? Because I'm actually not sure. Yeah, I think so. Um, he's he's not one of the more important characters, but he does play an interesting role, and I think he's um, in a lot of ways one of the more interesting characters because. He's just, I don't know, maybe more multidimensional. I mean, on the one hand, he kind of just seems like this cynical, very selfish old rat, which he is. But he'll have these moments where he actually does something very helpful. And he's always very begrudging about it. Right. Um, But I think that is what makes him, in my mind, a really memorable character. Yes, an extremely memorable character. Um, (laughs) At the very end, I, I had forgotten how fat he gets. Um, but that is, oh yes, he, yes, he does. <laughs> I think doing this, I haven't actually heard anybody do a, a speech, um, using this book, but oh man, you could do so much with his character and, and his voice. Oh yeah. So good. Um, the, the reason I had him in it as more of a major character was because he plays such an important role in getting the words, um, for Charlotte that she weaves into her web, but also because at the, of his role at the end of um of getting charlotte's children in the, yes the egg which i thought was really interesting because there's that line earlier in the book where he talks about or where the, the narrator is talking about how the goose and gander just had their their um goslings and they are telling Templeton very strongly to stay away because they know he's bad he has there's this great list of of adjectives that not not flattering adjectives that describe Templeton as <laughs> undisciplined and without morals, and he would kill one of these goslings. And then at the end, like what changes? You never see a specific change in him, per se, but obviously, I don't know, something... Maybe it's just Wilbur appealing to his stomach. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a big part of it, right? Is he agrees to do this favor for Wilbur in exchange for food. Um... But I kind of feel like he just realizes he's been this very selfish rat who can occasionally be coaxed into helping people and ultimately is, like you said, instrumental in saving Wilbur's life. Um, 
and I think toward the end, right, so he's, he's worked hard throughout this whole book to save Wilbur's life begrudgingly, and at the end he has the chance to save the lives of um, Charlotte's children in their egg sac, and he does so because I, I, I think that's just a, not necessarily a, a huge shift right there, but just a moment that represents that he's kind of been redeemed and he's, he's okay with the fact that, that he can be a good guy every once in a while. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What, what other characters should we kind of explain to our audience? So, we've, so Wilbur, Wilbur grows up or starts his life out at, at Fern, Fern mm-hmm. um, Arables, and then he is sold to her uncle, the Zuckermans, Mr. Zuckerman, and uh, lives over there. And Fern goes and visits them. So um, I, I think that something I loved was there were um, strong father figures in this book. It never made the parents silly, but there definitely were strong father figures in this book, which I really liked. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about before that before, but definitely. Because they're not prominent, but there are a couple of instances where um, – Fern's mother is worried. There's a great scene where she goes to the doctor and it's like she goes and she sits and tells like she she sits in the barnyard and, and talks to these animals or listens. Fern doesn't talk. She just listens and tells her mother these stories where she's like, Oh yes, the animals were talking among themselves and her mother thinks something's wrong. Yeah, kinda thinks she's crazy. <laughs> oh, right. And the doctor is very uh, encouraging of Fern and her her imagination. He's like, maybe she can hear things that we can't. Like, she's that's okay. Yeah, and her father backs her up too and exactly. says the same thing. Yeah, which I love. Exactly. So I just, I thought it was really great. And um, um, Mr. Zuckerman too. Like, you never get the sense that. So yeah, he. Okay, well we'll 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 back up a little bit. I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself, but uh, the. Okay, so they're on the farm, and Wilbur meets Charlotte, and then Wilbur finds out something terrible. Yeah, so he finds out, uh, all the other animals tell him that he's going to be killed for Christmas dinner. And he is, of course, horrified and just scared out of his mind. He is. And so they all want to come up with a, or or Charlotte promises that she'll, she'll help save him. And so after lots and lots of thinking, she weaves words into her into her web and they just kind of trick the humans, which I I love. And uh, the somehow E.B. White manages to strike this balance of I don't let's see, I'm figuring out how to phrase this even. The yes, they are kind of taken in by this by the spider web and it's, it's supernatural qualities per se, but it's never making that. It's not like he turns them, the human beings into these like spirit over spiritualizing everything or making them utterly ridiculous. Like it, there, there's some silly moments, but you never feel like things are out of proportion, strange or odd. Do you kind of see what right. I'm getting at here? Yeah. 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 There's no like superstitious aspect about it. Yes. The humans aren't like, that, um, portrayed as like these idiots for falling for this trick like there's none of that um, but what happens of course is Charlotte starts writing these nice things in her web um, like some pig I think is the first one that she writes mm-hmm. um, splendid radiant and 
there's definitely this theme that it's um, the glory doesn't go to Charlotte. A few people kind of notice like some pig. Well, that's some spider too. But for the most part, it's kind of like she's just telling um, the Zuckermans. And then, of course, the huge crowds of people who come to see her writings. No, no, this is some pig. <laughs> like the focus is very much not on her incredible web weaving but on trying to tell them how wonderful Wilbur is which is really sweet exactly and we as the reader get this wonderful perspective because we get to see both what the crowd is seeing but also we have a different perspective because we get to think more deeply about the beauty of a spider's web which is something that we literally brush aside all the time Yeah, I love that it talks about how um, there's often dew drops on the web in the morning. And Charlotte just is so happy every time that happens because she knows how beautiful that is. And Wilbur starts to see that, too. Exactly. Well, let's we'll we'll get to more of the story, but uh, let's let's talk about it through some of the themes here. So we we talked we touched a little bit on friendship earlier, but let's kind of go through some of the other friendships that we find in this book. I think that's one of the this is probably one of the most major themes in this book is friendship, but I think there are different types, as I was saying earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We talked a little bit, of course, about Fern and Wilbur, and um, I think their friendship definitely represents something um, that's very innocent. And definitely we see, right, Fern acting as the savior for Wilbur. I mean, literally saving his life and then going on to care for him. Um, But, the way that Fern interacts with Wilbur and then all the animals is they're very much on equal footing. Um, they kind of all just have this childlike wonder of the world, and Fern is very much a part of that. Um, and there are times in the book where we don't hear from Fern for a long time. We just hear from the animals, and then suddenly Fern's there, and she's getting up to leave because she's just so much a part of this um, barnyard experience. Exactly. It's like what I, I said last week about uh, a horse and his boy. Um, C.S. Lewis's yes uh, book. It's I I just love how they they the animals they treated her as a quote from the book they treated her as an equal. I just thought that was so what an interesting perspective to have. It is yeah it's it's flipped from what we'd expect exactly. um, but it works really well for the story. It does. It does. And then we talked a little bit about Wilbur and Charlotte already. And Templeton, in an odd sort of way, there's, uh, well, Templeton and, and all of the animals, how, the, how they have their interactions with Wilbur, because it kind of starts out as um, everybody's kind of annoyed by Wilbur because he wants to play. He's young and nobody wants to play with him or be his friend. And then as the story progresses, everyone. Uh, Charlotte calls that meeting of all the animals and they all want to join together because they have come to love Wilbur and just his appreciation for beauty and for life and the, the joy that he brings to the farm. It's not like he's some brilliant animal or great conversationalist or something like that. He has this simple, that's why I think the last word that Charlotte writes about him um, is so fitting and perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just going to say, I want to talk a little bit more about her last message, but I think there's this great shift where we see the animals, um, 
you know, because they're all kind of telling Wilbur, you're just, you're going to die, that's what happens. But then as he becomes really famous around the area and people keep coming to go and see these messages, the animals all kind of realize they actually have a shot at, at getting him to the fair, getting him to win a prize, and ultimately saving his life. And that's the point where they really become the friends, I think, that Wilbur has always wanted them to be. Exactly. Oh, it's so true. Very true. Well, do we have another theme that we wanted to touch on? I was struck um, thinking back on this book for the first time in years about just how prominent the theme of, of death is. And even that's connected with this sense of growing up, but really that's the whole book is just trying to figure out how to keep Wilbur from being killed. <laughs> yes. Really sad. <laughs> um, but that's just something that I don't know. I, I knew it was there as a kid. Of course I was, but I didn't want the Fern's dad to kill him either, but um, that's just not something that I think I would have expected from a children's book is just his paralyzing fear of death the whole time. It's really sad. Exactly. And we, we, I think that's the beauty of this classic piece of children's literature is it's not, you see death, but it's kind of something that's in the, it's in the forefront, but in the background as well. It's kind of there. It's, it's, you know, that it's, the looming kind of cloud over everything, but also there's so much hope because of Charlotte and because of the animals. So it's really. <sighs> it's not this, this terrifying looming thing. Exactly. Yeah. Even it, though it's really omnipresent throughout the book, it's, it's not this mournful, scary experience. Exactly. Which I think is, really fascinating to think about because that's really how it, it should be. I mean, for, for everyone. Yeah, I think so too. And I think we see that especially um, with Charlotte's death at the end of the book, where I think that's just something that's really beautiful. And of course, incredibly sad, especially for Wilbur, but we get this sense that she has lived her life well and she has, has, saved Wilbur and been a wonderful friend to him um, and even laid eggs of her own, which of course at the end it talks about how um, almost all of her little eggs, uh, these little spiders when they're hatched, they all fly away except for these three. And that's just kind of the cycle that goes on as Wilbur keeps befriending these descendants of Charlotte. And it's just this beautiful circle of life and death that, that, that just keeps happening and it doesn't have to be this scary thing. Right, it's very natural and and just so beautifully portrayed in in a way that is so accessible to children and it's not heavy-handed or trying to drive home some kind of message about death specifically. It's something that is there and it's all worked into a language that children and then adults too can just really resonate with if you take the time to open your eyes to it yeah absolutely exactly so that's... there was one last theme i was just gonna say one last thing we kind of hinted at with that last word that charlotte writes um in her web before she dies which is humble um which is such a great way to end it after all these splendid radiant like these big words to describe wilbur um but that of course speaks to her own humility as well i think as she she knows that she's dying and she even says this is the last one um 
And this whole time she's been weaving these beautiful webs for someone else, for her friend. And ultimately I think it's, it's her humility that comes out. Exactly. It speaks so much to, yeah, just everyday life and to, yeah, like you said, to, to Charlotte and just, it's a kind of her last hurrah. She, yeah, like you said, she's done these wonderful things that these big words and, or these words that really kind of uh, jump out at people. And this one kind of brings it back in and kind of refocuses everything and gives people a, a moment of reflection. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. But Very good. Well, I did have one last uh, question. Let's, I want to see. So in the, in the Socratic method, there's different ways to look at conflict in a story to kind of see where the tensions are. Like there's man versus God or man versus man or man versus himself. Would you consider this story man versus nature or would you consider like, would you take man versus man and instead do nature versus nature? I don't know. How would you look at this? The tensions oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably right that, uh, it is probably a man versus nature just because so much of it, does have to do with death in in either trying to not die or trying to accept, like we were just talking about, that that's just a natural part of life. And I think that's something that makes the book so beautiful is that it is finding these great friendships and this great beauty in something that's 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 natural. It's these animals living on a farm, and it's the way that things have always been, in a sense. Um, so I think there's a lot of that, although... I mean, technically, it is like a man that Wilbur's worried about killing him. <laughs> the way it's written is is very much a no. This is just the way that things are done. This is nature. What, what do you think? Well, I think there's a couple of them in in here. I actually think so. If we're if we insert pig for a man, we could do mm -hmm. man versus we could do pig versus himself because I think Wilbur has a lot of kind of personal uh, growing that he has to do throughout this. He has to stop panicking and and freaking out and yeah that's absolutely true to the point where um i mean he starts out being cared for by charlotte who calms his fears and by the end he's the one taking care of her children exactly so i think there's a couple of different a couple of different conflicts if you were to break the story up like so but uh, just a, it's just a fun exercise to kind of think about the story itself and like the structure of the story yeah i think so too but yeah so that is our, our lovely little discussion of Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. Moving on, uh, what, what would we like to talk about next here, Chandler? Well, um, I have a fun album I could recommend, and then you could share with us your delicious recipe if you'd like. Yay! All right, so for Charlotte's Web, um, I, I kind of felt that it needed something... Um, even though it's about death, it's still a really fun and sweet book. So I wanted something fun and upbeat. And I think the, the farm and the fair made me think of something country. Um, the trouble is I don't listen to country music. So, <laughs> um, I came up with something that's indie folk instead. So that works. Um, Perfect. I think. So I suggest that you listen to, um, The Milk-Eyed Mender by Joanna Newsom. And I could not say enough nice things about Joanna Newsom. She has a beautiful voice and she's an incredible harpist and you should listen to anything and everything that she's done while reading Charlotte's Web or at any time. 
Um, and the reason I picked the Milk-Eyed Mender is because it definitely does have some folk elements, but also um, it's just very fun and childlike. And at, at times, some of the music reminds me of like being at a county fair. Um, but there was one particular song that stood out to me that's about a couple different things, but in part it's about Joanna's uh, relationship with her dog, Sadie, which is the song is called Sadie. And I love these lines. Down where I darn with the milk-eyed mender, you and I and a love so tender, stretched on a hoop where I stitch this adage, bless our house and its heart so savage. And all that I want and all that I need and all that I got is scattered like seed. And all that I knew is moving away from me. And all that I know is blowing like tumbleweed. And I think there's a few themes in there that we could tie back, not just the friendship with animals, of course, but just the sewing reminds me of Charlotte, the language of stretched on a hoop where I stitch this adage and, and of things just moving on and growing up. Um, so I think, I think this is a good one. Listen to the Melkhead Mender and especially pay attention to Sadie while you read Charlotte's Web. That is so beautiful. And I love that she's a harpist that does yes. this. Yes. Oh, and she's so good. I saw her in LA a couple years ago <sighs> and it was the best show I've ever been to by far. It was incredible. Well, I'll definitely be looking this up. And I, I love how it's, you didn't just go for the, oh, country. Let's, no, nothing against country. I mean, I'm not a <laughs> fan, but I, it has its, it has its merits, but I think this kind of captures something. It captures a different sense of the I think so too. of this book um which I think is uh, really really wonderful. Well, my recipe for today there's so many mentions of food in this book and that's something I really love is they describe Wilbur's dinner uh, or Wilbur's yeah, I was meals. just going to say you're not going to tell us how to make that are you oh, because Oh goodness no. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> no, but I'm reading this and I'm like this is pig slops but it's I don't know if it particularly made me hungry, but it definitely didn't repulse me. I, that's something I thought was really <laughs> interesting about it was he wrote it from the perspective of Wilbur, who was so excited to get all of these things that we throw away. It's, it's slops. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Pigs will eat anything. But it wasn't a, oh, look at that pig. He'll eat anything kind of. It was just really charming. And, and he loved his food, which I really appreciated. But um, it mentioned it at least once, but maybe twice. There was part of a donut that Wilbur got to eat. And uh, I love donuts. I don't eat them very often because they do tend to, I t- <laughs> just tend to make me sick, but I still eat them anyway because I love donuts. Um, also, there are two different ways to spell donut. Just, I don't know why. But... Yeah. Is one British? I've always wondered about that. Oh. I like the one that has fewer letters personally. <laughs> <laughs> British. Mm, that would describe it. Or that, I don't would, know. that would explain it. I, I'll have to check on this. But uh, <laughs> anyway, there are lots of good recipes out there for donuts. Um, they, it's really, it can be time consuming, but that's something I did want to talk about. Just a simple donut. It's nothing crazy or fancy. Just the basic ones glazed are hard to beat. The thing with donuts is they take time, but I think time is an important element in cooking. And that's uh, the that's the other thing to note about Charlotte's Web is the passage of time. Um, we didn't really talk about it, but I think that's something else that could be explored more deeply is the beauty of time and changing seasons and different um, life cycles and, and things like that. So anyway... Back to cooking. Uh, Time is an important element in it. We want everything to be quick and easy and simple. And I do understand this to an extent uh, when it comes to food. Sometimes, though, the beauty is in the process. Donuts can be hard as it's a yeasted dough, meaning you you have to set it 
to rise and it has to rise a few times um oh rest and rise before frying and then frying them can cause such a mess and oh but they just taste so wonderful fresh and homemade so it's definitely not something i would do every day but think the beauty of the process um is is really important again something else like we could tie back to charlotte's web but Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and these sound delicious. Um, and remind me of the donuts that we had at the fair that we went to, um, <gasps> yes. which I was also thinking about reading this book and the fair <laughs> and all the fair food. Fair. <laughs> oh, we could, we could yes. talk on and on about this, but. Oh, absolutely. But, wow. Well, thank you so much, Chandler. This has been just yeah, a joy you. talking about this book. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, thank you so much to our listeners. I hope you will all go out and check out your own copy of Charlotte's Web from your local library or bookstore and read it to yourself. Read it aloud. Read it to your dog or your children or, or your you, pig. Or your pig. <laughs> <laughs> so please um, enjoy this book and the beauty that E.B. White has given us. And we'd also like to thank D. Yankee for our intro and outro music, Driving Home. Chandler? I will talk to you next week. That sounds great. And thank you, everyone, to listening for Once Upon a Podcast.